And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been uh, given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will, they will be priests of God and Christ and will reign for a thousand years. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we uh, passed out a letter from the Amazon called Blanco Burro. And it was a letter from Joey Johnson who described his time in, in, uh, in uh, the, the jungles of South America and he described uh, what was going on and uh, all these little great stories of how uh, how he was in an overloaded plane with uh, 17 people in a 13-person sh- uh, plane and how he uh, was walking across these torrents of water and uh, how uh, how he helped this uh, this uh, young boy who uh, had deformities in his legs and it was this incredible picture of grime and grace and that's why we sent it to you and that's why we gave it to you. And I loved it and I loved the stories, but I was walking up one of the times my son was um, being a pastor's kid and running up and down up through there. Uh, uh, I went back there and, um, and Lee Thompson was there and he said, how about that? Uh, he says, what about that, that, those stories and what about that, uh, uh, that, that uh, Joey Johnson's letter? And um, he, said, he said, but you know what I really love? I really love the end. And I went, oh, I went back to my seat and looked up and uh, what the end was. And the, the conclusion was this. Be safe, but not too safe. Love, Joey. Be safe, but not too safe. And I think Lee Thompson had it right. The most beautiful thing about that passage, about the uh, letter he wrote to us is that he compelled us to be safe, but not too safe. He was telling us to do, um, uh, telling us to experience life in a way that didn't have us in control all the time. He, and this uh, passage in Revelation, tells us uh, to be safe, but not too safe. God is saying in this passage, be safe in my control of the universe. Be safe in my limitation of evil. My ultimate protection of you in the midst of suffering and pain. But don't be that safe. Be free to love and be loved by me. Be free to love and be loved by your brothers and sisters and neighbors. Not so safe that you might be wooed away from me. Not too safe where you have to protect your heart and money and time. Not so safe that you leave my loving arms and go to another lover power, greed, or hedonism. Because I am who I am, Jesus is saying to us, you can live more dangerously, safe in me, but dangerously self-sacrificing, dangerously loving towards others, and dangerously free to not get what you want. Now it's going to take us a little bit of time to get there because, as you know, Revelation's got all sorts of crazy pictures and images and things like that. And it really will take us a little while to get there. 
But what I want to do is just spend some time looking at the pictures. This passage is not just, um, as I've said before, this is not a, it's, it's a picture book, not a puzzle book. But, uh, but in this passage itself, it's actually two different scenes of pictures. Uh, there's one scene in one through three, and there's another scene in, uh, four to six. And what I want us to do is just kind of look at the passage and see what emerges. There's all sorts of stuff written about these passages, but let's just look at the pictures and see if we can gather and glean anything from it. Let's check out scene one, if you will. We'll call this, uh, uh, scene one, just so you know, scene one is the angel binding the dragon in the abyss for a thousand years. And scene two is the souls of the beheaded people made alive to sit on thrones with Christ and to reign for a thousand years. See, didn't you get live dangerously right off of those two scenes? Um, scene one. This angel leaves uh, heaven, and it says, uh, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. I think of a log chain here, one of these huge chains, and the angel comes down, and uh, and comes down into heaven, and it pursues uh, this, this, uh, this dragon in the abyss, and, uh, and I don't want you to think of a Raphael cherub fat cheek angel. That's not what you're supposed to be thinking of here. You're supposed to be thinking of something without chubby thighs. You're supposed to be thinking of something that's a little bit more horrific, something you may be tempted to to worship or tempted to run from. That's a more biblical picture of an angel. I have a 15-year-old baby and everyone's, you know, lots of people are like, well, she's an angel, which, by the way, they mean cute and cuddly and loving and seemingly innocent, yada, yada, yada. Now, as a father speaks about her daughter, she is all those things. Um, But that's not an angel. An angel is something from which you would shriek back. An angel is something in which you were, want to run in terror. Not just an angel, a dragon. The glorious angel seizes this dragon. And we've already had a picture of this dragon before. Remember how I told you the, the histories run in cycles? Well, in the first, in cycle five and chapter 12, and in cycle six in the fall of Babylon, the, the, uh, the, uh, the dragon is described. Seven heads and ten horns and his tail sweeping a third of the stars out of the sky. A dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations. This dragon, this heinous thing, is to determine to destroy the woman and her offspring, the church, the people of God, and Jesus himself. Fire-breathing hatred for God's community. Now, actually this passage is helpful here. The picture actually has a little uh, uh, a sub-definition or a sub-explanation. Uh, it says, John lets us know what the identity is. It's that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan. Satan being translated best to a false accuser or a slanderer. So you have the angel and then you have the dragon, and then you have the binding. And the angel grabs that ten-horned thing and puts it in the abyss. And let me tell you what the abyss means. I don't know. You know what the abyss is? You know why they translated abyss? It's because it's Greek, it's abyssu. Because they don't know either. We don't know. It's emptiness is probably the best translation for it. It seems to be in the earth, if you will. I'm talking about in the images now. Something on the earth somewhere, but it's set into emptiness. It's locked up, if you will. We don't know what it is, but we know what its purpose is. It has uh, a holding cell function for a thousand years. The angel changed in the dragon, changed the dragon and banishes him to emptiness. You might say it's internment. It's, it's jail, not prison. It's, it's, you know, on law and order, you can keep him for 24 hours without any kind of uh, 
you know, kind of deal. You don't have to, you can just kind of keep them there. Or it's not really 24 hours. You got the thousand years thing. So it's, I hate to say this, but it's much more like Aruba or Guantanamo Bay, uh, where you can keep people uncharged for long periods of time. Now, I don't in any way espouse this. I'm not trying to talk about foreign policy or uh, the legal government things. But the reason that you do that is so that you'll keep people from corroborating their stories to working on their lies. And that's precisely what happens in this passage. If you look, there's a reason given for uh, the binding or a defining of what that binding is in verse 3. He threw him into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. He was locked up in jail, if you will, so that he could he would stop his um, his lying. The binding is the binding of a deceit that happens. Okay, that's the picture in the first scene. If you've been in the Sunday school class lately, you said now. The problem with Revelation is if you're anywhere uh, over 14 years old, it becomes hard for us because we keep trying to picture all the, get all the things figured out. And we keep trying to get all the lines figured out and say, well, what's the tail sweeping? And what are the seven horns? And what's the sixth of the seventh horn mean? And, you know, what are all those things? Well, that really becomes fruitless because uh, I think it being a picture book, the best thing we have is to take the 14-year-old's picture of what's going on here. If you ask a 14-year-old what is happening here, they would say something like this. Satan goes to jail for a while. Satan has to stop lying for a while. You may even say if he's younger, Satan goes to time out. He has to be put away. And that's precisely... I've read... uh, uh, Let's see, I've been to seminary for four years. I've talked with about 20 different people about this passage. I have uh, used Pastor Howard's 700-page commentary on this book. And I still think that's the best uh, uh, picture, the best gist of what's going on here. Satan is bound for a while to limit his lies. Satan's lies, the deceiver's lies, are stopped for a bit. Now, when is this happening? That's a really important question. When is the time referent? When is he stopped? When will he be stopped? When has he been stopped? And as important of a question it is, I want to hold off on it because I still want you to understand that even no matter what take you take on Scripture and what take you take on, on Revelation, you can get the gist of things. And that is this, that God binds Satan's lying for a while so that his truth might come out. When you have that there, that God binds Satan's lying for a while so that truth can come out, you realize two different things. You realize this, that God, not Satan is in control of this universe and is in control of this earth. I come from a tradition, I came up in a tradition that really said a lot of things like, you know, Jesus is, uh, uh, Jesus is Lord of all, but Satan's really prince of the earth. And what they meant by that was have full authority over the earth. Or, you know, uh, he does have authority here. Satan is in charge of the world. And I really think that's wrong. Uh, Revelation clearly says that it's wrong. No matter what authority the dragon either thinks he has or everybody else thinks he has, he basically gets put down by one of God's boys. It's an attendant. It's not even God himself. He sends one of his people to take him out. And it's not even one of the good named people like, you know, Gabriel or Michael. It's not, you know, seemingly in the top three. God takes him out simply and easily and shuts his lies off. 
It reminds me of uh, Luther's wonderful hymn, Mighty Fortress. The prince of darkness grim. Yeah. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word shall fell him. But there's something else that kind of came over me. It's not that God's in control. I'm a Presbyterian, and so I believe that God's sovereign over all things, and, and that's an easy one for me to get, that he's in control of everything. But there's another one here, too, and this happened actually while I was um, I was in the park, and I have um, my wife has an iPod, and so she has her little iPod list on my computer because mine's a little bit faster than the computer for downloads and things like that. So every once in a while, while I'm doing a sermon or what have you, I'm list, I listen to her kind of music list. And, uh, and believe it or not, I think the black eyed peas agree with me here. Uh, I'm in the middle of this point and, uh, where is the love, y'all? It comes up, uh, uh, and, uh, which is a great running song according to Amanda. And I like the song anyway, but, uh, but it's an important song, not just because Justin Timberlake, a very white man, beatboxes, but because of what it says. The truth is kept secret. It's swept under the rug. If you never know truth, then you never know love. Where's the love, y'all? Come on, I don't know. Where's the truth, y'all? I don't know. If you never know truth, then you never know love. Jesus binds Satan's deceit so that you can know truth. We live lied to. We live... If you're like me, you need to hear the truth of his love. If there's nothing else in this passage that you hear in this first scene is that God's truth binds Satan's lies. Our enemy is the false accuser. He's the slanderer whose primary purpose is to get you to believe a lie, hiding the truth and hiding the love. And God says, no, I am binding your mouth so that you can hear my love. And this is good news for those of us who struggle with believing the gospel. There are so many counterfeit gospels out there, so many lies to believe, so many people who tell tell you that God's love is contingent on your goodness and your behavior and how well you perform. So many teachers who say that mercy and sacrifice are not the ways of the kingdom. So many who proclaim that Jesus is just someone to learn from and not someone to rest in and abandon yourself to. So many who tell us we need to earn our way into God's affections or that, uh, or that something in us is drawing Him instead of something in Him that's drawing Him to us. There are so many important things that we need to hear the truth on. And this passage says that God gives Satan a limited ability to lie to us. Pastorally speaking, this is huge. I sat with a friend and a parishioner when he was suicidal in his bed, unable to lift his head, basically in a fetal position, unable to hear anything other than a parent's voice plaguing him of his insufficiency, of his bizarreness, of his weirdness, of his inability, his being beyond the pale of redemption, of his strangeness and of sin and of his hatred, self-hatred and of her hatred. And he sat there in the middle of things and I did not know what to do with him. And I was just praying that he would not believe the lies of Satan and lies of the enemy. I said, do you hear any other voices? And he kind of shook his head, yes. And he said, I said, what is it saying? And he said, 
in a way that I can't imitate or act out, but in a way that that didn't really say anything but words, kind of mouth the words, I am loved by another. Satan is bound so that truth can be heard, the truth that he is loved by another. It may not be the loudest truth in your head, but it's the truest truth in your head. It's the more real, the more convincing voice. And it's true because God has bound Satan's lies so that we might hear his truth, so the nations would no longer be deceived. Let's move to the second passage. The second passage is, uh, or the second scene. The first is the, that of the binding of Satan. The second is what you might call the I see dead people scene. Let me read it for us through verses 4 through 5, uh, verses 4 and 5. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been given, uh, have been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus, for testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And as a aside, the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So immediately you move uh, from this earthy abyss of some sort back up into the heavens, if you will, back into these thrones. The, the, the book of Revelations uses thrones 47 times. 44 of them uh, are uh, referring to uh, a throne in heaven. Three of them are referring to Satan's counterfeit throne. So you seem to be back into this kind of uh, throne room, if you will, and these thrones of these unnamed people uh, sitting around are there. And so you have this flash of this throne room scene, and they're unnamed. They're just Their function is just told of. They are the, the non-named sitters in judgment or thrones Throne sitters in judgment. That's who they are. But remember, I told you that Revelation works in cycles. So uh, if you go back to the first cycle in, a, in the letter that John writes to his uh, friends at Laodicea, in the, very first, uh, in the very first cycle, he says this, To him who overcomes, I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So these unnamed, at least possible throne sitters are, are, are at least in the picture somewhere. This montage of, of pictures that's, uh, and sounds that flash before us in Revelation circles back and we go, oh yeah, I do kind of have an idea who those people are. But not just those people who are unnamed. You have uh, the ones who are at least named as the beheaded ones. Um, and uh, these are the martyrs. I saw the souls of the beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus. Now I'm not sure what a soul looks like. We're meant to have bodies with souls in them. But this is what he sees. He sees souls, uh, clearly disembodied souls, uh, uh, um, an entire company of people who, uh, who live in this condition for a time, uh, not knowing what they look like. We do know why they're there. He gives us two reasons in the Scriptures. It says, first, because of their testimony about Jesus, i.e., uh, because of the Word of God, and secondly, because they refrained from worshiping the beast and therefore were not marked by his mark. 
And immediately, again, this cycling Revelation story, we're reminded of the second cycle in verses, uh, uh, chapter 6, verses 9. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. The souls that had been slain by God in Revelation 6 kind of show up here again in some way. I'm not saying they're one-to-one correlations. I, you'll probably never hear me say one-to-one correlations in Revelation. Um, but but their, their image pops back up in our head again. These people who are in Revelation 6, all the souls that have died are under the throne pleading out for vindication and for justice. The martyrs, if you will. I want to say a little something about martyrs because we got a kind of messed up view of martyrs right now uh, both because of Christian history and uh, in the history of Islam. Martyrs, Christianly speaking, are not ones who are aggressors. You're not a martyr because you go on crusade in the 11th century. And you're not a martyr because you blow yourself up trying to, uh, to hurt others. You're a martyr because aggression has been done to you. That's a Christian martyrdom. That's a Christian understanding of martyr. These people are martyred because they wouldn't bow their knees to the emperor in Rome. Or ones who would not participate in the temple prostitution of Colossae. Or ones who so convincingly preached the love of God uh, in Ephesus that the silversmiths, tried to kill them or lock them up or cause a riot because the silversmiths did, couldn't, uh, because basically um, uh, idolatry or idol casting in silver was obsolete now because nobody needed their idols anymore. These are the ones who are marked by their dying in order to pray, proclaim God's love to people, marked by sacrifice and unmarked by the beast, marked by the dangerous way they proclaimed and even more practiced the counter-cultural kingdom of love and peace unmarked by status quo of the counterfeit kingdom of self, of greed, hedonism, and power. But they're not just dead. They're once dead. It says in Scripture, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The dead souls live. And so they participate in a living reign with Christ for these thousand years. It's not, I see dead people, I see once dead people. And just so you know, well, and this is what he calls the first resurrection. This is what, yeah, that's what the first resurrection. I just want to be clear because these terms are really tough. Just so you know, no theologians believe that this is the final resurrection. And most of them don't believe it's a bodily resurrection, and I agree with that. We're in a situation uh, that's like that second cycle I told you about the souls that are under um, under the altar. This is not a final resting place of believing souls. It is a first resurrection, not a last one. It's a beautiful place of peace and heavenly fellowship with the Lord. True joy. But I don't know a single theologian that believes this is the full consummation of God's redemptive plan. I just want to come say that now. So you have these living souls, ones who are unnamed, ones who are... Uh, um, who are the beheaded ones, the martyrs. And then you have another set, and it's just in that little parentheses that we talked about. Um, it's the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. And we're actually not even shown those. This is just a little commentary on the side. There's another set of dead people, if you will, I hate to say this, uh, but there really is, and it's not one shown, but one told of. And it's another group of people who do not receive life and presumably will not receive any reigning on the thrones. Until the end of the period, they will not become alive. And as a side, it does not seem to be a desirable state, just so you know. Especially when the passage goes on to say that the living and reigning people don't have to face the second death. But these guys do. So there are three, actually, now. 
sets of people. Ones who are unnamed, others who are beheaded, call those guys named, and the other ones uh, who don't, uh, don't, uh, don't get to live until uh, the second death. Now, a quick thing about a thousand years. A thousand years. I would not die on the hill of any numbers in Revelation. There are sevens of sevens, there's halves of sevens, there's uh, seven years, and there's 1,260 days, which is a half of seven years. I'm not saying they can't be uh, true in, in the chronological sense. They're true in the uh, imagistic sense, no matter what. But the, the 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. There's 1,000 days at some point. There's another 144,000 at some point. The thousands, uh, I think, at least means a really good long time. I would not expect just because the way the, read, the book of Revelation reads, that it's actually a thousand. Remember, Jesus has seven... Uh, 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 well, he has a sword coming out of his mouth at one point, but he also has seven crowns on his head at some point and uh, seven eyes as well. So we, we don't want to necessarily you know, take all our numbers uh, to mean exactly kind of uh, what it looked like, if you will. Um, so, so let's go to... Now we have the thousand years. Okay, now we're in review again. We've got the three sets of people. We finished the second scene. And what can we learn from it? What do we learn from the dead people living? You don't have to be 14-year-olds now. It's good. Because the last two verses in our section actually tell us. It tells us this. Blessed, in verse 6, Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has now no power over, over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Revelation tells us that there's a vindication. There's a vindication of the martyrs and that there's peace for those who trust in Him when they die. God blesses believers in their death. That's the point of this second vision. Blessed are they and holy. Blessed to have our soul in the presence of its Creator and Redeemer and Lover. Blessed to be in touch with the One who's pursued us even in our rebellion. Blessed to be called holy and set apart when all we were doing was just going along with the status quo. Blessed to be in some mystical way reigning with God Himself. And that's not even everything. You're going to have to wait for the last couple of chapters uh, before our disembodied souls, you know, when Pastor Howard comes back, get their flesh back. But we are still blessed and holy nonetheless in this kind of intermediate state uh, where our souls and our bodies are, our souls are with God and our bodies uh, that need to still be redeemed. And this means for us that death has no permanent power over God's people. No permanent power. Do not hear me say that death doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. It is our enemy. And we should rightly hate death. We were not made to be disembodied. We were, not, we were made to have uh, our skin on for the rest of our life. We were made and created for those things. Sin came in and uh, had its way with us, and so there'll be a time when it's not. But it is unnatural and not right. But it does say, this passage does say, that death has no permanent power for those who trust in Him. We're not to make peace with death. We're supposed to make peace with the one who can free us from death who can turn our death into living. Scripture says that death is our enemy, but it says it is our last enemy. What does this say about God's mercy? 
Scripture says that sinners like us have fallen short, desperately short of our created intent. That we have taken the beauty of God's creation and distorted it for our own good. We've stripped dignity from ourselves and our neighbors. We turned from our heavenly parent in utter rebellion to seek our own way. We've done all these things and he uh, and made ourselves orphans. Uh, but he has come to give, Christ, give life to those who come to Christ. Because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, repentant rebels get treated like kings. Self-made orphans get treated like family. Sullied and desecrated souls are called holy. People who hate Jesus are called priests of God and of Christ. You understand that we should be judged, but in this passage, God gives us the dignity to judge with Him. That we are in need of priest sacrifice, but that in this passage, He calls us priests Himself. I don't care if you're 14 or 44, you can get that one. That there is not a sting in death now for those who are in Christ. Okay, two questions left. One is, when is, this, when is the time reference? When is this happening? What's this thousand years? Is it all future? Is it all past? Is it all uh, present? And the next one is, you've got to get us back to the Amazon at some point and tell us about living dangerously. Let me start with the millennium. With some fear and trembling, but pretty convinced, I think that this passage, these two passages are talking about now. The time in between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. That is the millennium reign. It's the millennium reign for uh, those who die in heaven. And it's the millennium reign in which the Lord uh, has silenced uh, or at least somewhat limited, uh, has bound Satan's lies for his people. I think that for a lot of reasons, the way the structure of the book of Revelation is, I'll tell you all more about those later uh, if you want to come to uh, the Tuesday night Bible study, Tuesday night Sunday school. There's all sorts of reasons why. Uh, there's, one of the main reasons is that there's a judgment, final judgment deal uh, that starts right after this passage. And so you'd have like two final judgments. It would just, it, it's clearly in the beginning of things. It's clearly um, uh, uh, starting something. Um, but let me tell you why I really think it is. And that's because it seems like Jesus has already created these categories for us. Do you know that Jesus actually talks about these kind of images a little bit? He hints at them. Uh, in his earthly teaching ministry, he seems to have categories for uh, uh, his, in his first coming what happens. And in his uh, first coming what happens both to Satan and what happens also uh, to his people when they die. In Matthew 12, 29, Jesus uh, talking to religious folk who couldn't figure out how he had power to heal people and be so loving and kind and gracious and forgive sin. Uh, they blamed him for being in cahoots with Satan. And here's what he said. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Speaking of Satan, he says, you've got to bind the strong man before you can come and bring all this glory and goodness. One commenter uh, really helped me with this. He says, interestingly enough, the words used by Matthew to describe the binding of the strong man is the same word used by John in Revelation 20 to describe the binding of Satan. Another time when the uh, the disciples were out proclaiming uh, good news to the to the world, uh, uh, they came back and were surprised at the effect that they had. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Satan falling figuratively into the abyss where his lies cannot go forward as the truth of the gospel goes out to the world, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, the one who has come to be Messiah. And lastly, in uh, John 12, 31, he ties the restriction of Satan's activities with, Christ, with Christ's missionary activity. And he says this uh, in John 12, Now the prince of the world will be driven out, but I, when I am lifted up, the earth will draw uh, up from the earth or to the earth, I will draw all men to myself. The same word for driven out is the same word in Revelation 20 as well. Jesus wants to draw all people unto him, so he binds the lying words of Satan for a time so that we might hear his truth. And what about when people die in Christ? I got several stories, but I'll just leave it to one. He turned to a man who was a kind of rapscallion, uh, who was sitting on a cross next to him or crucified on a cross next to him. And uh, that man finally uh, proclaimed Christ. That was my son, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, proclaimed Christ uh, and said, you know what, I'm not worthy to be coming down from this cross. Uh, and he is unjustly here on this cross. And Jesus turns to him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. You, not fully embodied, it's not going to work for you. Jesus' body's not even going to be there. It's in a tomb for at least three days. Uh, uh, but today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, you will, if I to use Revelation 23, 20 language, you will sit on the throne and live and reign with me for a time until my second coming. All right. So what? Who cares? Right? Now let's turn to Joey Johnson's word, little epistle to his home church. Be safe, but be not too safe. Because Jesus has bound Satan for a time, and because he has freed us to proclaim his gospel, we are free to talk about Jesus. We are free to live dangerously for our neighbors and our communities. We're free to speak truth to people about God's love, even when it makes us feel uncomfortable, especially when it makes us feel uncomfortable and them uncomfortable. We're free to risk our reputations, to proclaim with our actions and words that Christ has come to give us life and abundant life at that. It will cost you self-sovereignty. It will cost you arrogance and self-reliance. It will cost you your facades and cover-ups. It will cost you um, your own way. But he offers freedom from sin and guilt and shame. He offers freedom uh, to experience a kingdom of love and peace and joy. He offers a freedom... Uh, and acceptance in the midst of pain. He offers a sovereignty that says that even in the middle of your difficulties that I will bring peace and love. Jesus finds Satan so you can hear and trust your Creator and your Redeemer. And just so you can hear it, not just so you can hear it, but so that you can proclaim it. Proclaim it with word and deed to live more dangerously than you thought. And what's the worst that can happen? Well, according to Revelation, they can take your head. And that's a big thing. They can take your head. But that's what that second scene is all about. That when they take your head, they do not take you ultimately and permanently. They can have your life, but they will not have it permanently. They can have your way. They can have your reputation. They can take you out, but they will take you out. Uh, When they take you out, I will take you to myself. 
It is true that if you mention forgiveness and sin or sin in some settings, you may never enter those social circles again. It is true that if you minister to people who are violent, they might kill you. Entire system of the world may come pouring down if we give up our um, uh, our love and greed of things and people, uh, our lusts for people. Uh, it is possible that that like the silversmiths of old, that entire systems might break down. And those things might break down and we may lose our houses and they would be crushing upon us. But ultimately, we can live dangerously because we're secure in who the Lord is. Ultimately, we can live dangerously because we're not scared of dying. We don't want to die. No real martyr wants to be a martyr. No true prophet wants to be a prophet. They're always reluctant. If you're taking some self-righteous approach to this, I, I urge you not to. That is not what I'm talking about, where you become Messiah and you become the important martyr for all things. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not trying to say go out and look to die and get beheaded and chopped off and all those things. I don't mean that in any way, shape, or form. But what if we lived ready to die? What if we lived not holding to the things that we hold to so strongly. What if we lived a little more dangerous, safe, but not too safe? Jim Elliott um, is a famous uh, missionary who died uh, at the hands of the people he was trying to preach to in South America, in the Amazon. And he wrote this quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me say it again. He who is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I tell you what, that quote is uh, all over missionary t-shirts across the world and intervarsity chapters all across the nation. It's uh, this huge and important quote. And it's almost kind of funny. It's almost a Christian subculture quote. I like it a lot. But the like quote I like most about Jim Elliott is actually uh, from Elizabeth Elliott, his wife. Jim was actually speared um, to death by the people he was going to... Um, to bring the kingdom of God to. They were scared of him. They thought he was uh, maybe part armadillo because of the way his skin looked. Uh, uh, this was many years ago. Uh, they didn't know when he came out of this big old beast of, of a bird in the air and came and didn't know exactly what to do with him. His skin was way too white to be human. Uh, they didn't know what to do with him. Uh, so they killed him. Um, and... Uh, and uh, it actually made national news and they talked about it being a travesty and a tragedy. And Elizabeth Elliot says, I don't know why they call Jim a martyr. He was dead long before they brought a spear to his throat. Meaning this. He was abandoned. It was okay if he died or he didn't die. He would martyred his soul in one real sense long before he ever took physical death or physical death took him. He was ready to die, ready to not die, ready for whatever brought him. He lived safe, but not too safe. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the fact that you did not live safe, but that you came for us, that you brought redemption to us, that you... Um, left heaven so that we might experience your grace so that we might uh, um, know our security in you Lord I pray that you would help us as a community experience that know it believe it uh, embody it in a way that made us uh, abandon ourselves to you and to our community we ask this in your name
Amen.